He was a kid from the Bay Area with a difficult relationship with his mother. And while most kids could relate to that kind of situation, only one kid was the multi-talented and charismatic son of Afini Shakur, controversial leader in the Black Panther Party. Episode 4 of the documentary series Dear Mama, The Saga of Afini and Tupac Shakur explores his incarceration and his impact on his art and activism. Welcome to Hip Hop Movie Club. This is a show for Gen X hip hop fans who want to relive the glory days and reconsider classic and modern hip hop films from a current day perspective. Together, we'll explore some of the larger societal issues raised in these films. If you've seen today's movie before, you'll learn some fascinating trivia you might have missed. If you haven't seen today's movie before, then we'll help you decide whether this film is worth your time. Either way, you'll be a smarter hip hop fan by the end of this episode. The next 30 minutes or so, you'll get all this and more. We're three old heads who put their old heads together to vibe on these films for you. I'm Dino Wright, podcaster, filmmaker, longtime hip-hop fan, and I saw Disorderlies in the theater when it came out in 1987. I'm JB, 80s and 90s nostalgia junkie, longtime hip-hop fan, and at the time of this recording, I am mad hyped to go see the Rock the Bells Festival in Queens, New York this upcoming weekend, featuring LL Cool J, Run DMC, Rakim, Big Daddy Kane, Slick Rick, Queen Latifah, De La Soul, The Roots, Ludacris, Method Man, Red Man, and many, many more. Can't wait. <laughs> nice. I'm excited for you. I'm Boogie, a DJ, longtime hip-hop fan, and the first rap song that I ever learned all the words to is Sucker MCs by Run DMC. That's a great one. In this episode, we'll answer the question, will Tupac's ambition break him? <laughs> Dear Mama, The Saga of Afini and Tupac Shakur is a TV documentary series about the complex man we knew as Tupac Shakur and his mother Afini Shakur and her influence on his life. It premiered on FX on April 21st, 2023 and is available on Hulu. Alright, let's dig into this episode four. What did you guys learn about Tupac from this episode that you didn't know prior to watching this episode. Boogie, you want to kick us off? Yeah, I've, I think the first thing I know, it wasn't necessarily something that I didn't know, but I think is that I didn't know that it was to this extent. It's like I always knew that he was a workhorse, but I had no idea of how much of a workhorse he was. I mean, there's there's always stories um, there's mentioned all the time. We mentioned to Tupac about how they always saw him writing in a book, writing in a book, writing in a book, writing rhymes, writing rhymes, always, you know, trying to be on time for things and um, staying late. And, I, and it was funny because I was watching how they were talking about him. And I said, you know what? This is how other basketball players talk about Kobe Bryant. And it was kind of like a, it was a crazy parallel. But they were talking about how he would wake up at five in the morning after being up to, you know, all kinds of ungodly hours in the, in the morning on like maybe three hours of sleep, you know, the alarm's going off and he's running out of the door. And they said, you know, the outside is basically had to be about five steps behind him. He's like, yo, when I leave, make sure they're right behind me, get to the studio at this time so they can get going. And I was just like, wow, this dude is like crazy, like with his work ethic. But, you know, it also to the point where they were saying that he was exhausting himself. He was, but he kept pushing, but he was burning himself out. 
And so I think like with that, I was just like, wow, I didn't realize he was that much of a workhorse. And, and that's probably one of the biggest things that stuck out for me in that episode. Tyler Wright, anything to add on that? I, I did come away with a sense of his work ethic. Like he really was sort of the Kobe Bryant of, of, of other rappers. Like no one worked harder than him. I'll say this. It felt like he had a real sense of he had to do all of this and work for 21 hours a day because that was like his his mission. And I don't want to say that he thought he was going to die young, but it seemed like he had to be as creative as possible and make as many things as possible and take care of as many people as possible because he only had so long to live. But yeah, it's it's, it's exhausting watching this schedule. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that producer, um, director Gobi, said you know, the one thing that shocked him about Tupac was how much creativity he packed into one day. Yeah. It's like it's like man. Nonstop. Gobi was funny. I like he he called himself a wannabe filmmaker. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the work ethic was outrageous. I, I had some notes on that as well. It was like studio to set, studio set, studio set. Mm-hmm. And this this episode's entitled "Ambitions as a Rider," which is one of his songs. And his he was so ambitious, he wanted to write movies, star in movies, direct movies. He had met with Malcolm X's daughter and Al Sharpton about projects. He wanted to do it all, and he had the talent to do it all. And then you know what happens is you know he gets linked up with with Suge Knight. Well, the beginning of this episode is when he spends eight months in the maximum security prison, Danamora. And that was yeah. just a nasty place. People were routinely getting stabbed and killed. And he actually put it, that Me Against the World album together while he was in prison. But he had some protection on the inside, which was good. But you can see how uh, when Suge Knight took over Death Row Records, he bailed out Tupac. So Tupac felt a loyalty to him and to the West Coast because he was missing kind of that father figure, as we kind of hinted at in the last episode. Mm-hmm. And, and so he, he kind of leaned that way and that was his squad now it was the west coast he thought that he was set up when he got shot in in new york and uh he was out for vengeance yeah yeah when he's in the beginning of the episode and he's talking about you know, all the work he's doing in jail putting on a record and then as soon as he gets out of jail he goes right to the studio i mean that's someone who's very committed and as a creative person myself i kind of feel that like i've never been to jail but being cooped up and not being able to like really like express yourself creatively i can relate to that when i don't get a chance to do a podcast or do some other creative project for a while i i'm chomping at the bit like tupac was this boiled cobra ready to strike yeah and he mentions that i love how they kind of tell that story in this episode and then they have the california love playing like opening credits and he references his time in jail, right, in that song. And that's like, he was so excited to be able to put those lyrics over Dre's beats. And yeah. it was a perfect marriage. He called it, uh, after jail, part two of his life. But yeah. <laughs> pretty poetic from a poet. He was just 24 years old and he wanted to live life to the fullest. So you see him kind of doing more of the party thing and just kind of living life to the fullest. And I love the little clips where they talk to Snoop Dogg or uh, Mike Tyson and yeah. Snoop had a quote around that time said he was happy and excited to join Death Row, but the environment was bad for him. Too much temptation and, and a little bit, you know, chaos under the wing of Shug Knight. Yeah. I think with, with Snoop too, he was excited 
kind of to be working with Dre because Dre was one of the hottest producers out. And then, you know, now they got the missing piece of the puzzle with, with Pac joining them. But like you said, the, the environment and the, the the business side of the business side wasn't as uh, as pleasant, <laughs> to put it lightly, <laughs> as they'd wanted. But, you know, they were felt a sort of a bit of loyalty because of, you know, being where they were and the money was coming in and nobody wanted to interfere with that money coming in. You know, there was a point where, you know, Pac is standing and he's just counting $100 bill after $100 bill. <laughs> it's just like, what? <laughs> so now he's like, oh, now he can kind of fulfill that ambition of, you know, taking care of everyone in his family that he wanted to take care of. But yeah, it was, it was a hostile environment. <laughs> and the other piece of loyalty that Tupac felt to Suge Knight, Suge actually saved him from drowning. I didn't remember that incident from back in the day. I wasn't aware of that either. Aware of that. Yeah. So that's something new I learned also. Yeah. Yeah. Snoop was saying that, you know, Suge kind of took on the role of his big brother and said, you know, one day we were riding in the, the Rolls Royce and the next thing you know, he went and bought Snoop a Rolls Royce. <laughs> it's like, it's like, man, <laughs> it must be nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I can dig it. Yeah. You can see more of the dynamic between Tupac and Snoop as well when they were both young. Snoop was fighting the murder charge uh, because of his bodyguard being charged, and he was like a, supposedly like an accomplice to the crime. And Tupac was so supportive of him because he kind of knew what it was like to be falsely accused. And so he had his yes. back. And it was like Tupac was wise beyond his years in terms of dealing with the legal issues because, again, the upbringing he had with Afeni. And uh, it's kind of like Tupac was encouraging Snoop to be a, more of an activist. And Snoop was a little reticent, and but he kind of was – his eyes were open to being more than just a, a, a rapper, like kind of trying to make a difference for the youth. Yeah, I definitely enjoyed hearing what Snoop had to say in this episode um, from that perspective. He was explaining how he actually, when you say like he, how he developed a strong bond with Tupac, and it was it was refreshing to see that side of him being mentioned um, because a lot of times, like from the media, you're like, oh, you know, he's this this crazy guy, you know, he's he's hostile, he's this and he's that. But for somebody that was actually working extremely close with him, you know, you got to see that, you know, he wasn't just this this person that was out on a mission to to do anything bad. He was actually very loyal and supportive of people that he felt needed it or people that he felt um, would support him in return. I definitely enjoyed what Snoop had to say about him in this episode. Yeah. Pretty refreshing. <laughs> What, what was some of the historical footage or other footage from Tupac's past that was most interesting to see? <laughs> One of them was his Rick James bit. Yes. It's <laughs> cool. I was cracking up at that. <laughs> oh, he was so funny. <laughs> uh, it's so ripe for, 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 for parody and he does it so well. <laughs> I didn't know what I, I didn't know what he was doing at first. I just saw the long wig. I thought he was trying to be a, a female or something. And then he goes into the Rick James uh, impression. That was hysterical. I just so conditioned by Dave Chappelle's yeah. Rick James impersonations that any long 
long black wig is like Rick James. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, it's amazing that exists because that was eighties, nineties. Like, I'm glad someone had a VHS recorder. Yeah, it's gold. Yeah, that stuff is gold. Yeah, somebody was somebody had the hindsight that they were going to be making some kind of documentary on them or something because <laughs> and to preserve that so well. <laughs> it's amazing what they had. Yeah. You know, like you back then you could just film it and put it on the, in the cloud, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Another thing that was really cool to see is, is Tupac at age 13 appearing in the, a raisin in the sun at the Apollo theater. Yeah, yeah. right. He loved to perform, and that was kind of his family was involved with the theater, and he got to act on the stage. And that was actually a fundraiser for Jesse Jackson's presidential campaign. Yeah, that was pretty cool. That's cool. Yeah, and they were talking about how during in rehearsals, they said that he he was so good with his lines, and that he was helping everybody else with their lines. It's like he had that much talent at that age. Um, it was that was that was cool. That was very cool. It's one thing to be an actor and know your lines, but it's another thing to be an actor and know everyone else's lines. Yes. That's that's work ethic again. Yes. Yes. I think one thing that, that caught me um, is interesting, when he was getting interviewed regarding Geronimo Pratt, mm-hmm. how he was able to articulate the defense of his godfather, is they were asking him about, are you aware that you know he's been, he's a murderer and, and things like that? And he's like, I was like, hey, do you have proof of this or were you a witness to this murder? Like he's like, you told him that if you can't speak on it because you, you haven't been there or you didn't see it. Or there's no proof. He's like, I would not come and talk about badly about your family member like this. So why would you do it about mine? Like he's my godfather, you know, he's my godfather. So why would you bring that up? And it was like, wow. Like <laughs> it's like just the way he worded it. I was just like, huh, that actually that makes a lot of sense. Like very wise. Yeah, it's like wow. Like he was he was he was very sharp on the responses to questions. Like not even really thinking about it, just boom. That's that upbringing in the Black Panther part. Yeah, right. Yeah. I also really enjoyed the clips of his old friend John Cole. Uh, that was yeah. in Baltimore yes. School of the Arts with him and his drama teacher yes. from Baltimore drama teacher saw this gem of a talent and he's very empathetic he you know the drama teacher seemed very empathetic for what tupac was going through how he had moved multiple times and it mm-hmm. it almost brought a tear to my eye when he's when he said for the last time it's like my mom's moving to oakland and you know, he said tupac was crying he's like i gotta go and it's kind of like losing that this rising star that you know he's gonna become something yeah. and uh he, he left an indelible mark on everybody that he uh, had touched. Yeah, that really struck me for two reasons. One, that happened when he was seventeen. Like that drama teacher already knew he's only seventeen. Like, yeah, his whole life ahead of him. But the story that his drama teacher tells about him doing that performance to Vincent by Don McLean. Oh, oh my yeah. god, my favorite part of this whole episode. And it's like right at the end, almost like a throwaway. And so, for <laughs> those of you who don't know, Vincent is like Don McLean's other hit besides. American Pie. And so it's a song about Vincent Van Gogh. And um, it, you start to think, 
Yeah, I know Tupac had a lot of range and like he liked all kinds of music, but here's a soft rock hit from the 70s. Like, what's Tupac messing around with this? But it's really poignant. Um, it talks about seeing things with eyes that know the darkness and souls. And wow, you get to really see another example of Tupac's range. And the way that Alan Hughes does this in the film, it plays Vincent. It's very kind of emotive and kind of mid-tempo and it goes right into hit him up which is very much not that oh my goodness so much range it was nice tribute to tupac to go from vincent you know yeah nice soft rock hit to one of the great battle diss tracks ever yeah 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 if we can link vincent can probably hit yeah. him up and show those that'd be pretty cool as we can see the contrast Cause that that song, man, when he was, when he was playing, I was like, wow. I'm like, I wish there was footage of him performing to this song. I'm like, somebody, please come forward with it. <laughs> man, I would love to see that. Like, I almost forget how direct <laughs> these are shots fired. Like that song is like, whoa! I forgot how strident it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's even mentioned they kind of cross some lines at the end, and he's really dissing people, and he's even talking about some like health elements of the folks in Mob Deep, you know, like sickle cell anemia and stuff. And it's like, oh man, they kind of went really beyond yeah. what, what yeah. they should have. He crossed the line, drew another line, then crossed that line, drew another line, yeah. then crossed that line, <laughs> drew another line, and crossed that line. Yeah. I remember the first time I heard that song, my mouth dropped. I was just like, what? From the the first thing he says, you're like, what? <laughs> and it was crazy because, like at that at that particular period in life, I was out a lot. Like I was in a lot of parties, a lot of clubs, a lot of parties, a lot of clubs, and I kept hearing this song. And I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> it was just crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> It's to the point I heard it so many times I started knowing the words to it. I'm like, I don't want to sing this. I don't want to sing this. <laughs> like, no. And going back to something I didn't really realize, it was after the MTV Music Awards and they had interviewed Tupac and, and Snoop right after. And Snoop didn't really, didn't really seem like Snoop was backing up Tupac on this whole East Coast, West Coast thing. And Tupac turned on Snoop a little bit or maybe a lot bit after that. Uh, I didn't know about that. I didn't really think about that you know, until now. Yeah, I actually had that in my notes as well. And then Snoop was telling the story about how it all happened. He's like, he thought that Suge was going to take him out. He said, like, we're about to fly back to LA. He's like, yeah, your security can't come. So Snoop is the whole time is like, all right, maybe they're going to they're try to take me out. And he's like, talking about how he slept on a, on a flight back with a fork and a knife. When yeah. I open, it's like, oh man, <laughs> that's paranoia at its highest. Like, you're like, what is going to happen? Yeah. And then you're looking at your best, like, who at the time was one of your best friends. Like, yo, we going to the Tyson fight. And he's just like, ips. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're like, oh. <laughs> so, you know, he's like, I'm going back to LA. And the rest of them went to the fight in Vegas. <laughs> and I know at that point, in hindsight, Snoop was probably like, yeah, I'm so glad I didn't go. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that was the end of the episode. That was very haunting to see. Yeah, Snoop it was. was scared for yeah. his life, and the way he told that story, yeah. I was like, "Man, he was." I, 
nervous as heck yeah. because yeah, because he didn't he didn't take that opportunity to badmouth Biggie and Puff Daddy at the MTV Awards. He didn't really yeah. dive in. Suge Knight wanted to really jump on that and increase the beef, I guess, with the East Coast yeah. West Coast. But yeah, he's talking about at the time. He's like, you know, I like I like Big and Puff. I want to do a song with Big and Puff. Like, why would I want to talk yeah. bad about them? I want to do a song with them. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. He was not about to cut ties. Yeah. <laughs> One underlying theme that I took out of this episode, too, and I think this was mentioned by his drama teacher from Baltimore, too, part about Tupac being a chameleon. He always became someone. And that's how you see when we we talk about when he takes on these roles, like when he became um, Bishop and Juice and when he, you know, he took on that role of like Haitian Jack we talked about when he got into character and, and gridlocked really took on that role of the, the heroin addict and he went full on and like kind of like what they're trying to say in this episode is he took on this persona of the gangster lifestyle whereas people were saying that's really not him that's not him but mm-hmm. he was yeah. living that life you know and he's under the tutelage of suge knight and he's all in and he becomes that person so yeah as we know is a tragic ending um but yeah that that was his persona. Yeah. It's like one one thing too that kind of struck out to me was I didn't realize he was in the process of starting a film company and a record label. He had like notes and documents that he was ready to move forward with it in that process and in, in the process of making amends for some of his past bad behavior, you know, working and saying, you know, he had, you know, was trying to reach out and apologize to, you know, Spike Lee and, and John Singleton, et cetera, trying to say, Hey, you know, Let's work together. I know I, I might have been a pain in the neck to work with back in the past, but I'm a, I'm a different person. I want to move forward. And, you know, it's a shame because I'm thinking to myself, like, man, he was thinking about starting his own record label. How would that have gone over with Suge? He was his cash cow. He was the cash cow for, for Death Row at that time. Yeah, I think he signed for three albums, right, when he signed with Death Row. He yeah. committed to putting out three albums with him. So right, got the writing right away. But yeah, you're right. That would have violated probably the agreement. Or like, even if he put out the three and still said he wanted to walk. Yeah, right. Because I know, like, when Dre broke away from Death Row to start Aftermath, he had to leave all his rights and production for them songs with Suge. Like, he just walked away alive, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so Pac have had to do the same thing, and Pac is a lot more outspoken than Dre is. <laughs> How would that have gone down? It's like one of those what ifs. Yeah. What would you say is one of the more surprising things to you from this episode? I definitely have one. The most surprising thing? I think it would probably be that whole situation with Snoop. Yeah, that that's definitely one. Because I had never heard it. I never heard that. I was like, wow. Yeah, really? yeah that was <laughs> something new uncovered. The most surprising thing to me is knowing what we know about Suge Knight and his... <laughs> Mean streak, understatement of the year. He held an annual Mother's Day event. Yeah. <laughs> he was the least likely person <laughs> that I would think would hold a kind of company event for mothers to pay tribute <laughs> to the mothers. I was like, isn't that something? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Tupac performing Dear Mama at it. Yeah. Tupac. That was nice. Yeah. Glow was like, and Glow was like, I was there. I was just the number one, yeah. the number one fan. <laughs> The number yeah. original <laughs> fan for him. He was the original groupie. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the original groupie. That's the original groupie. 
Is it? So oh. mentioning Gloria, another thing that surprised me is that there was a scene, there was a part of this episode where she says that she was asked not to dance the way she was dancing because it was like gang signs or something and they never really go back to that and thought, what happened there yeah yeah she, yeah i remember yeah she said she was dancing and she had her hands up and he said he, somebody came over and tapped on the shoulder and said tupac said to sit down you're throwing up gang signs <laughs> it's like what seemed odd yeah they, <laughs> yeah, they, they kind of rushed past that <laughs> it was at at shook knight's club the 662 club yeah, 662, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you never know what can happen there. I don't know. So many good artifacts or like little historical footage. Like I just I love that picture of Tupac as an infant slash newborn. And they're talking about it was like one month and three days before he was born when the Panther twenty one case was closed. You can see him with a pacifier. Uh you see. Yeah. And then as he grows up a little bit and you see him the family and uh, leading up to the, the play, Raisin in the Sun. It's always neat to see those, those, like going through an old scrapbook. Yeah, all the way to the Machiavelli cake. That's right, the Machiavelli cake. <laughs> yeah, the Machiavelli cake. We had a picture of him yeah. when he was in, what, did he say sixth grade or something? I forget. Something, something like something that, like yeah. That. Yeah. Something he was like about that, 13 yeah. or so. so. He was going through <laughs> learning about historical figures like, you know, Machiavelli. Yes. And that became, was that the album that was released? Posthumously, Machiavelli. Mm-hmm. Yep, Don Kilimanati's right. album. Yeah, one of the things too that they also they, they talked about, kind of sad though, was about how they had to they had to keep moving around. It was hard on fi- with finances because Feeny couldn't keep a job for various reasons. Um, some people recognized her name or whatever whatever reasons she couldn't keep a job, and then she started smoking crack to cope with the stress and the pain. Mm-hmm. And then they ended up having to leave New York to go to Baltimore. And, and as we mentioned earlier, with the drama teacher, they ended up having to move out to Oakland and he had to go again. And it's like, man, I can that's a lot of moving. I, I forgot how many addresses they counted when they were talking about how many addresses in, in New York I mean, they were mentioning them in the Globe, but it was a lot. <laughs> yeah, they flashed up like five or six, yeah. Like five or six different addresses in that short period of time. <laughs> different neighbors to get used to, different people. Being a new kid on the block, you know, as his cousin mentioned, you know, with, a, with an African-sounding name, they got picked on and teased and had to fight. <laughs> it's like, man. Oh, that was the thing the drama teacher said. Somebody was, they were giggling at his name when he was first introduced mm-hmm. and he stood up for himself. And the drama teacher said, that's the last time anybody ever mentioned anything negative about his name. Yeah, so he spoke for 10 minutes. He gave a 10 minute speech. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, wow. Well, you can see what, what shaped him. And I think somebody quoted this. It was like poverty, Panthers, guns, and like PTSD. It was almost like a post-traumatic stress mm-hmm. disorder. Yeah, having moved so many times, having been through those harsh conditions, and then he really goes through the ringer, you know, accused of yeah. this, false accused of this, being targeted here and there. You can see why he had a chip on his shoulder. Yeah, and they mentioned that even the, the kids, after Afini's acquittal, the kids, uh, and you know, coming up, the kids would get harassed by local police and FBI agents following them and asking them weird questions about what was going on in the houses and stuff like that. That's a lot on the kid, especially when you really don't understand what's going on. And the insight from his friend, John Cole, said that he would hang out with him. They'd be like in the dark a lot. There was, again, impoverished conditions. There was 
they say a mouse or a rat or something. He didn't have anything. There was a scene where there was like one potato for the family or something. They would cut up and make French fries to last them a few days. French fries, yeah. And with Tupac, when he hits it big and he take care of the family and he's like, man, I'm out of prison. I'm living my life. I'm just hanging out with the ladies and <laughs> yeah, trying to live life to the fullest. Another piece of footage I found very fascinating was, you know, the Tim Roth footage. Uh, Tim, yeah. Tim Roth was, I love those interviews with him. He worked with Tupac yeah. on that movie Gridlocked and it was a shame because they he said they needed extra security on the set because of the East Coast, West Coast feud escalating at that time. Yeah. yeah. Tupac had a funny quote where they were asking if he learned anything from Tim Roth being a longtime actor. He's like, yeah, I learned exactly not what to do, what not to do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he was joking with him and having drinks with him and all that stuff. It was kinda of neat. Yeah, that was that was cool. Yeah. It was cool because twenty years later see how charismatic and how magnetic he is on the screen but to hear it from tim roth at the time right then about how like he basically put him on his heels he put him on skates how good he was and yeah you know, tim roth had to step up his own game and here's that seasoned actor saying this yeah for a guy look at his basically like a brand new actor or, or just coming up that was cool to see Oh, <laughs> Mike Tyson. <laughs> I forgot about this. The, the end. Yes. Like, no. <laughs> is, there, is, is there a lesson to be learned about this? And I said, Mike was like, yeah, shut my effing mouth. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, don't escalate things unnecessarily. Even Mike Tyson learned from this. Yeah. yeah. And one of the he's probably one of the most feared men walking the planet. Yeah. <laughs> Hip Hop Movie Club is produced by your HHMCs, JB, Boogie, and Dino Wright. Theme music by Boogie. Check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Hip Hop Movie Club. On the next episode of the Hip Hop Movie Club podcast, your HHMC's review episode five, the exciting conclusion of Dear Mama, the saga of Fafini and Tupac Shakur. Subscribe today in your favorite podcast app and you won't miss it. Shout out to our listeners. Thanks for tuning in. And remember, don't hate, calculate. Nice. Do the math. <laughs> Mathematics. <laughs> Shout out to Brain Freeze Trivia in the Lehigh Valley. Check out the Instagram brain underscore freeze underscore trivia double underscore time. That's brain freeze trivia time on Instagram. <laughs>